Father, we thank you so much for this time together tonight. We thank you for all of the wonderful things in this book that are so uh, impactful in terms of thinking about what it means to live for you in this culture. Lord, we pray that as we come tonight with our hearts and minds full of all sorts of things, that you would uh, help us to put aside the things that have been the worries and cares of the day. And we pray that you would open our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that whatever you might desire for us to learn, we would be able to take in, and that you would use this time to help us become more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, uh, thanks to all of you for participating last week in the inaugural C.S. Lewis Reading Day. Uh, we were posted with our dramatic reading on the Pints with Jack social media sites, and uh, y'all did a great job with that, so we acquitted ourselves well, so thank you for that. And uh, I think it was such a success uh, around the world that that is now going to be institutionalized and happen each year. So that's a good thing. So let me move to our music of the evening, which is not from The Who, like last week. I have to say, I was really surprised that no one knew that that was Won't Get Fooled Again, but you never know. So maybe you'll know this one. This is not The Who. Voices sounding, even though that tune might not, thrilling might not be the first word that comes to your mind, but it is actually one of the great texts of Advent, and I think that there are some other tunes that have been written for it just recently that might spice it up a little bit. Uh, but the great thing about this hymn is it is a hymn that has been sung by Christians for 1,500 years during the season of Advent. Uh, and in the first verse it says, Hark, a thrilling voice is sounding. Christ is nigh, it seems to say. Cast away the works of darkness, O ye children of the day. And you will remember, if you were in church on Sunday or if you were at Evensong, that we had the great Advent Sunday collect that Thomas Cranmer wrote in 1549, uh, which originally uh, in the Church of England was to be prayed every day in the season of Advent. And it includes that line, uh, casting away the works of darkness and putting on the armor of light, which comes from Romans. Casting away the works of darkness, putting on the armor of light, uh, during this time in which uh, thy son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility. So it's all about the incarnation. So very appropriate for Advent. I will um, 
send a link and I'll see if I can find a setting that's got the new lively or tune, uh, but it will be a great thing to meditate on during Advent. So let's say together our verse. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So just a word of welcome to anyone who's new, whether in person or out in podcast land. We're always glad to have new folks with us. Uh, please do sign up to get our class email. Uh, there are several approaches to this class that we always talk about and people move from one level to another. Um, you can be on the beach, which means you do nothing at all. Don't read the book. You might not even come to class except when you get dragged here by someone else. If that is all you want to do, that's great. Um, we're glad you're here. If you want to snorkel and go deep on the parts that you like, that is great too. Um, I was impressed last time when I had tried to say the handout was only for people who were scuba divers because it was a pretty intense, long handout and they all disappeared. So good for you. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand about whether you actually read it or whether you felt like you understood it when you read it. Uh, but it is something that will, good. Yes. Well, it will repay your effort if you, if you spend the time with it. Um, there's a really short handout tonight um, that I would commend to you as well. Um, so if you are out in uh, podcast land or in another country listening, we would love to get you on the email list so that you can get the resources for class. Please Google St. Philip's Church Charleston, United States, and that will get our website to come up, and then you can email me and we will get you added. And uh, one of the great things I heard from one of our uh, remote students who was in Saudi Arabia who had just written an article on C.S. Lewis that she said she was inspired by what we had been talking about. So you just never know what the Lord may do. So uh, a couple of things about why I continue to be so excited about this book. And part of it is because it is a work of genius. And the farther we get into this book, the more you will see what a work of genius it is. And part of the reason for that is that Lewis is operating here on three levels. The story is a marvelous capstone work to all of the Narnia stories that is perfect and fitting for children. But it is also at the same time a profound reflection on the sin of Eden, um, the means of grace and the glory of heaven. And at the same time, it is a great parable about following Jesus in 21st century America, particularly on the ideas of word and truth. So um, to do a quick review with uh, the bird's eye view, with the bird flying very fast, uh, the chapter three, the ape and its glory, this ape sets himself up um, as basically the king of Narnia, and he declares that he is a man, not an ape, despite the fact that he obviously is an ape, and insists that everyone call him a man, and that he is the intermediary for all communication with Aslan. Um, Aslan actually is not there. This is a fake Aslan, which is a donkey with a lion skin tied over him. And he never actually 
says anything on his own. His handlers trot him out and give him words to say, and then he is trotted back away again. Then chapter four, um, the king of Narnia, who is a young man uh, who is virtuous, is, uh, he surrenders to uh, this ape because of something dishonorable that he felt that he had done, and he's tied to a tree. The Narnian animals come and minister to him in a beautiful and creative scene. Uh, Tyrion the king cries out for Aslan to come rescue him. He feels stupid tied to this tree out there yelling into the void. Uh, but a little part of him hopes Aslan will answer. And then suddenly he has this vision. And he is cast into another time and place. And he sees people seated around this dinner table. And he recognizes that perhaps some of them are the people who are the folks of Narnian legend who have come in times of grave turmoil in Narnia. So he's all excited to be able to beg them for help and thinks Aslan has answered his prayer. And as he begins to try to speak, he finds that he is mute and he's unable to speak. And then the vision fades and he thinks all is lost and he's totally depressed. And so in chapter five, he wakes in the morning still tied to the tree, wet and sore and absolutely in despair. And then all of a sudden, bump, bump, these two children appear before him. And he recognizes them from the dream. He is perhaps somewhat dismayed that it's the two youngest, smallest children rather than the adult, more warrior-like people who might have come to his aid. But he realizes that these children are people who are famous in the history of Narnia. Um, they are able to free Tyrion and they go on in the next chapter to go back to Stable Hill where the ape is headquartered and they rescue uh, the best friend of the king who is Jewel the Unicorn. And Jill, the girl, manages to sneak into the stable and free the donkey who is the fake Aslan. And so that is a really good thing because now they've got the evidence, the clear evidence that the ape has been lying the whole time. So in last week's chapter, we encountered this company of dwarfs who are, have been sold into slavery and are literally on their way to the salt mines to be in slavery for the West, rest of their life. And Tyrion and his friends liberate them from their captors. But rather than being grateful, they just are cynical and have a terrible attitude. And then Tyrion decides to show them that this whole thing about the ape and Aslan is a fraud. And he brings out the evidence, which is this donkey with this dirty old lion skin tied around him. And he says, this is what you thought was Aslan. This is not Aslan. So clearly the ape has been tricking you and we need to go back and start serving the real Aslan and we need to get rid of this ape. And he expects the dwarfs to be, yes, let's go. And instead they respond with complete cynicism and only one out of all of the ones that they saved says thank you and stays on their side and all the rest march off to do dwarf things. So that brings us uh, to a little bit of a deeper dive on this topic of cynicism. 
which is a topic that Lewis thought was unbelievably important, and it shows up in a number of his works. And what you notice in this story is that the cynicism of the dwarfs blinded them to the truth, that they were utterly unable to see the truth even when the evidence was right there in front of them in a way that was really undeniably accurate. And yet they were absolutely refusing to believe it. So this is what uh, the passage says that we talked about last week. We've been taken in once and now you expect us to be taken in again the next minute. We've no more use for stories about Aslan, see, Look at him, the donkey that is, an old moke with long ears. By heaven, you make me mad, said Tyrion. Which of us said that was Aslan? That is the ape's imitation of the real Aslan. Can't you understand? And you've got a better imitation, I suppose, said Griffel the dwarf. No thanks. We've been fooled once and we're not going to be fooled again. I have not, said Tyrion angrily. I serve the real Aslan. Then where is he? Who is he? Show him to us, said several dwarfs. Do you think I keep him in my wallet, fools, said Tyrion? Who am I that could make Aslan appear at my bidding? He's not a tame lion. The moment those words were out of his mouth, he realized he'd made a false move. The dwarfs at once began repeating, not a tame lion, not a tame lion, in a jeering sing-song. That's what the other lot, the ape, kept telling us, said one. Do you mean you don't believe in the real Aslan, said Jill? But I've seen him, and he sent us to here out of a different world. Ah, said Griffel with a broad smile. So you say they've taught you your stuff all right, saying your lessons, ain't you? So you see that they are utterly blinded and that the only thing they care about is themselves. They're totally focused on what's good for them. So Lewis talks about cynicism and flippancy uh, in several places, but I think the most compelling place is in the Screwtape Letters. And if you've never read the Screwtape Letters, I'm sort of jealous because I would love to be able to go back and read that for the first time again because it's so good. But the premise of the Screwtape Letters is that there's a young man who is on the verge of becoming a Christian and there is a devil who is assigned to tempt him to make sure he doesn't become a Christian or if he does, that he renounces it. And this devil, uh, Wormwood, is being trained by an older devil named Screwtape. So the book is supposed to be letters uh, from Screwtape, this older devil, to Wormwood, the younger devil, about how to mess up this guy's life. And so Wormwood, this demon in training, um, he's trying to corrupt this man, the patient. And so in this letter, there's an excerpt where Screwtape discusses the benefits of flippancy. Now, flippancy is closely related to, and it's often the result of cynicism. And basically what flippancy means is failing to take anything seriously. That you just make a joke about anything. If you can make a sarcastic joke about it, so much the better. And you never take anything seriously. And if anyone calls you on it, you can just say, oh, well, I didn't mean that. I was just joking. So this is what Screwtape says in this letter. 
But flippancy is the best of all. In the first place, it's very economical. Only a clever human can make a real joke about virtue or indeed about anything else. Any of them of virtue were funny. Among flippant people, the joke is always assumed to have been made. No one actually makes it, but in every serious subject it is discussed in a manner which implies that they found a ridiculous side to it. If prolonged, the habit of flippancy builds up around a man the finest armor plating against the enemy, that is God, that I know. And it is quite free from the other dangers inherent and other sources of laughter. It is a thousand miles away from joy. It deadens instead of sharpening the intellect and it excites no affection between those who practice it. To be flippant is to be frivolously disrespectful, shallow, sarcastic, lacking in seriousness. To be flippant, you may think, isn't all that bad. It often disguises itself as just being laid back, cool. But what Lewis states here is that flippancy is actually very dangerous, deriving from a cynical view of the world. The armor plating that Lewis speaks of means that as a Christian, if I become cynical and flippant, I'm less likely to take sin seriously in my life, less likely to take the blessings and joy God provides seriously, and more likely to project a hurtful and uncaring image to others while cutting myself off from true fellowship. Flippancy is closely allied with and is often a result of cynicism. It's so easy to be flippant, so easy to think, oh, I kind of read some Bible today and I said a quick prayer in the shower, so that's me and God sorted. It's so easy to think, I'm so funny. My friends like it when I make jokes about them, but they know I really do care. But what if we are wrong? God does not want us to be flippant. In fact, he wants the complete opposite. And this is a great little passage from Revelation 3. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the church in Laodicea, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, I would suggest that a characteristic of lukewarmness is to be flippant and cynical, to not really care either way. God wants us to be passionate about our faith and loving toward all people. He wants us to care deeply and he tells us to be zealous and eager rather than flippant. And think about the fact that Lewis wrote Screwtape in the 1940s. Think about how much more cynical and flippant our culture is today than it was back then. And this is part of the reason that you see that there is so much loneliness right now. There is an epidemic of loneliness, and part of it is because flippancy and cynicism make it almost impossible 
for people to be vulnerable in their friendships with one another. You have to always keep up this front of being cool and not having any needs and being more cool and together than the other people around you. And that is antithetical to the way that Christians are called to live. And it's no accident that Lewis calls cynicism and flippancy armor plating, that it makes it almost impossible for the Holy Spirit to get through. So that brings us to chapter eight. Chapter eight, just in case you haven't read it, let me just tell you, this is not a happy chapter. Not a happy chapter. So what news the eagle brought? So when the eagles come in the Lord of the Rings, it's always good. The eagles are always doing amazing things, rescuing Gandalf off Saruman's tower, picking up Frodo and Sam from the slopes of Mordor and carrying them away where they can be healed. The eagles in Narnia, not quite so much. The eagles are good guys, but a lot of times they are bearers of bad news. So the chapter starts off as the Tyrion and company are walking through a pasture and all of the sudden there is this horrible stench that arises and it gets worse and worse to the point that they start feeling nauseated and then the sky goes dark and they hear this thud, 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 thud and they look up and they see this horrific creature with all these arms and the head of a vulture with this long beak and sort of emanating from it is this stench. And Tyrion is absolutely dumbfounded as he sees this. The others who don't know quite what it is are terrified. Puzzle runs away. Um, Jill starts crying. Everyone is in despair. And Tyrion says, I know what that was. That is the god Tash. Because Tyrion has been to the Tisrock's place in Kellerman, that country that is far away from Narnia where these invaders have come from, where they worship Tash. And he has seen an altar to Tash that looked exactly like this horrible creature that just went by. And all through this time, remember the ape has been saying Tash and Aslan are the same. And that actually you could just say Tashlan because they're really the same person. But the people running things, uh, Ginger the cat, uh, I'm just wanting to say I expect y'all to appreciate the fact that I've not gloried in the fact that a cat is the evil person. <laughs> I'm, I'm not really a cat fan and there's so much I would love to say, but I'm not saying it. Uh, so anyway, the cat who is in charge has made clear that he does not believe that Tash is real. And so they've been calling on Tash and all this and all their public pronouncements, but they don't believe Tash is real. But now, here Tash is. So Tash goes by, eventually they can start breathing again. It doesn't smell so bad. The sun comes back out. Um, they decide that Rather than follow Tash to see the ape, they're going to circle back and meet up with their ally, Rinwit the Centaur, who's one of the great warriors of Narnia, and the army from Caer Paravel, and then go to Stable Hill. So 
they feel very good about that decision. And then there's this brief respite where they are wandering through the beauty of Narnia as they walk toward Kir Paravel, that ancient city of the kings of Narnia where the royal palace is. And Jewel reflects on the many years of peace and beauty that have been in Narnia. And then they see this circling in the sky and they realize it's an eagle. And the eagle comes and shares these dread tidings with them that Ker Paravel has fallen to the Calarmine army, that there's been an invasion by sea, that the Tisrock's banner is now flying from Tyrion's castle, and that Renwit the centaur, Tyrion's dear friend, and the great warrior of Narnia has been slain. And Tyrion declares that this means that Narnia is no more. That's the end of chapter eight, but it's not the end of the book. So... Don't despair yet. Um, there are a number of themes of this chapter. The first is the reality of Tash, the reality of evil and of demons. Um, there also is the reality of the fact that persecution comes to those who hold fast to the truth. Because one of the things they learn in this chapter is what happened to Jewel while he was being held captive by the ape. And he was tortured over and over again and they demanded that he renounce Aslan and follow the ape, and he refused, and so they had sentenced him to death, and he was liberated the evening before he would have been slain by the ape and his minions. Uh, third thing, the beauty of creation in nature is a tonic in evil times. The glory of happy and peaceful times brings joy in the present and in the remembering and then all worlds will draw to an end. So first, the reality of Tash and of evil and of demons. In the shadow of the trees on the far side of the clearing, something was moving. It was gliding very slowly northward. At first glance, you might have mistaken it for smoke, for it was gray and you could see things through it. But the deathly smell was not the smell of smoke. Also, this thing kept its shape instead of billowing and curling as smoke would have done. It was roughly the shape of a man, but it had the head of a bird, some bird of prey with a cruel curved beak. It had four arms, which it held high above its head, stretching them out northward as if it wanted to snatch all Narnia in its grip. And its fingers, all 20 of them, were curved like its beak, and had long pointed bird-like claws instead of nails. It floated on the grass instead of walking and the grass seemed to wither beneath it. After one look at it, Puzzle gave a screaming bray and darted into the tower. And Jill, who was no coward, as you know, hid her face in her hands to shut out the sight of it. The others watched it for perhaps a minute until it streamed away into the thicker trees on their right and disappeared. Then the sun came out again, and the birds once more began to sing. It seems then, said the unicorn, that there is a real Tash after all. Yes, said the dwarf, and this fool of an ape who didn't believe in Tash will get more than he bargained for. He called for Tash. Tash has come. It will be a surprise for the ape. People shouldn't call for demons unless they really mean what they say. So some scripture. 
Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And then from Ephesians, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. And then in James, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And Jeff Miller, the rector, did a great teaching uh, on Sunday this past week about the different kinds of belief. And he noted the fact that all through the New Testament, the first people to recognize who Jesus is are invariably either demons or people who are demon-possessed. And they believe, they know who Jesus is, but that is an intellectual belief. That is not a trusting in Jesus. So this idea that just knowing who Jesus is is enough, uh, scripture is pretty clear that that is not adequate. And then the second theme, persecution may come to those who hold fast to the truth. So remember Jewel the Unicorn, and this is, this is a beautiful passage in the middle of this chapter. If you haven't read the chapter, I don't want to discourage you from reading it uh, because it's a little bleak because there are beautiful moments in it. And one of the things that is beautiful that Lewis describes is this sort of instantaneous friendship that happens between Jill and Jewel the Unicorn. And she immediately, as she spends time with Jewel, realizes almost the holiness of this creature, his integrity, his honesty, his love, his care. And so um, Jewel went through terrible things when he was imprisoned by the ape, but he doesn't go off into lots of detail about it. So he basically just tells them enough so that they know what happened. Jewel had little to tell them. While he was a prisoner, he had spent nearly all his time tied up at the back of the stable and had, of course, heard none of the enemy's plans. He had been kicked, he'd done some kicking back too, and beaten and threatened with death unless he would say that he believed it was Aslan who was brought out and shown to them by firelight every night. In fact, he was going to be executed that very morning if he had not been rescued. He didn't know what had happened to the lamb. You might remember from earlier on, the only other creature who directly challenged the ape was this lamb. Says so some scripture from the book of Acts. When they had called in the apostles, they being the Sanhedrin and the Jewish council, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then the apostles left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And then from 1 Peter, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. And then Jesus in Matthew 10, you will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. 
Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And then Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this part of the chapter is really important because what Lewis is showing us is Jewel's true faith in Aslan and that he knew that that true faith in Aslan and the belief and the goodness and the beauty of Aslan and Aslan's will was the thing that gave his life meaning and purpose and made it worth living. And to renounce that would have been to renounce everything. And so he felt that the suffering, even if it was suffering unto death, he knew Aslan and that that made it all worthwhile. And the interesting thing for us is that we don't like, if you're like me, these verses about suffering because none of us voluntarily wants to choose suffering. But the fact of the matter is, and this is kind of what Andrew was talking about in his homily in the service tonight, if you are trying to follow Jesus, you're going to be out of tune with the world. And the more upside down the world gets, the more people don't like things that are out of tune and want to stop them. So persecution and suffering have been part of the Christian faith from the very beginning. And one of the things that we often don't realize because we tend to be insulated, even though we're in this world that is so connected media-wise, one of the things we don't realize is that there are many more people being martyred for their faith today than there were 20 years ago. And there is horrific persecution against Christians in different parts of the world. So it is a reminder to us to not hold on too tightly to the comforts and things of this world, but to make sure that like the verse that we say in church, that where our treasure is, our heart will be also, and that our treasure is with knowing Jesus and holding fast to the truth. So on a happier note, uh, the beauty of creation in nature is a tonic in evil times. So right after all these difficult things have happened, um, they start walking and they're out in creation. It was a little after two in the afternoon when they set out and it was the first really warm day of that spring. The young leaves seemed to be much further out than yesterday. The snowdrops were over, but they saw several primroses. The sunlight slanted through the trees. Birds sang. And always, though usually out of sight, there was the noise of running water. It was hard to think of horrible things like Tash. The children felt this is really Narnia at last. Even Tyrion's heart grew lighter as he walked ahead of them, humming an old Narnian marching song. So this idea of the beauty of creation is something that is all through the scriptures. It is fired through the Old Testament and the New Testament, 
But in our culture today, where we dwell indoors almost all of the time, and when a lot of our time indoors, our eyes are focused not looking out the window, but they are focused looking at our phone to the point that people that specialize in neck chiropractic are, um, have no slots available in their schedules anymore. But the point of all of this is that Scripture tells us that God has placed us in the beauty. Listen to what Jesus says in chapter 6, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. I would submit to you that this is the most disobeyed command in Scripture. Uh, and it's interesting because it is a man, command um, that is repeated multiple times by Jesus. Do not be anxious. Do not worry. Someone recently told me something that their grandmother used to say. Um, their grandmother was somebody that lived in Charleston. And the grandmother said that worrying is like going out to your porch or your piazza and sitting down in your favorite rocking chair. And the more that you start worrying, the faster and harder you rock. And you're going and going and going. And you think if you worry hard enough, you'll make it to Columbia. And there is so much truth to that because worrying accomplishes absolutely nothing except to wear you out and make you frustrated that you're not where you'd like to be. And Jesus knew what he was doing when he told us over and over again, do not worry. And we've heard this passage, but I want you to notice about what Jesus says to do instead of worry. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you, of not, are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And one way of looking at this is saying that Jesus tells us that when we are anxious and worried to take our eyes off of ourselves and to put our eyes out into God's creation and to look at the things that God has made like birds and lilies that are beautiful and that respond to God's care and have been here for centuries and are unaffected, utterly unaffected by the things that we're so worried about. Uh, Jesus doesn't say, there's a hilarious old Bob Newhart skit called Just Stop It um, that I would commend to you. I might even send it out. Uh, he's supposed to be a psychiatrist and this woman comes in and she says she has this terrible phobia that she's going to be shut up in a box and buried and he's like, oh, I can solve that, $5. And she's like, really? And he's like, yep. So he's, she's like, this sounds great. I need to get on with my life. So they go into his office. 
And he said, so tell me your problem. And she says, well, I'm terrified that I'm going to be shut up in a box and buried. And he looks at her and he says, listen to me, just stop it. And she's like, well, no, no, you know, and her son, just stop it, just stop it. And they go back and forth and she's like, well, I want my money back. And um, he just keeps on with the just stop it. And ultimately he says, just stop it or I'll bury you in a box. <laughs> but the problem for so many of us is we think we need that kind of advice, that advice is gonna solve our problem. But what Jesus says is that's not it, that the problem is only solved by changing what we're looking at. And part of the reason that we look at nature and the beauty of it is that it should make our eye, as Lewis says, travel on up the beam of light to its source, to God himself. And then this great verse um, from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. And I would just suggest to you uh, to think about if you've been outside anywhere remotely near sunset, over the past couple of weeks, we have been having these glorious sunsets with this pink and red and orange just painted all over the sky. And this is what Lewis talked about, what he called profligate beauty, which is beauty that is just strewn around the creation and it has no purpose. There's no scientific reason that it needs to be like that. It just doesn't have to be. It's just there because God put it there. And it is a reminder to us that God is the author of all that beauty and that we would do well to focus on that instead of on all these things that beset us and to give thanks to him. And then this great little passage from the book of Job. But ask the animals and they will teach you or the birds in the sky and they will tell you or speak to the earth and it will teach you, or let the fish in the sea inform you. Which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. That is a great verse to memorize if you are anxious. In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. So, Related to that, the glory of happy and peaceful times brings joy in the present and in remembering. A couple of weeks ago, we spent some time on this whole concept of remembering and Ebenezer's, uh, which is all through scripture about how important it is to remember. And so in this passage, what was happening is Jill was saying to Jewel the unicorn how she wished she was in Narnia when it wasn't so uh, wrought up that every time they come into Narnia, there's some sort of crisis going on. And she said, you know, it's sad that Narnia is a country that is just full of crisis all the time. And Jewel says, oh, no, 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 no. 
It's not like that most of the time. It's only, you only are summoned when we're in times of emergency. But in fact, there are centuries of beautiful, peaceful, joyous, happy times um, that are wonderful. And so he proceeds to tell her about some of them. He told how King Gael, who was ninth in descent from Frank, the first of all kings, had sailed far away into the Eastern Sea and delivered the lone islanders from a dragon and how in return they had given him the Lone Islands to be part of the royal lands of Narnia forever. He talked of whole centuries in which all Narnia was so happy that notable dances and feasts, or at most tournaments, were the only things that could be remembered. And every day and week had been better than the last. And as he went on, the picture of all those happy years, all the thousands of them, piled up in Jill's mind till it was rather like looking down from a high hill onto a rich, lovely plain full of woods and waters and cornfields, which spread away and away until it got thin and misty from distance. And she said, oh, I do hope we can soon settle the ape and get back to those good ordinary times. And then I hope they'll go on forever and ever and ever. But one of the things that the scriptures tell us is that when we are in happy and peaceful times, we need to be present in them. We need not to squander those times, worrying about when times may not be peaceful. And we also need to be recalling over and over again into our memory those times in the past that were times of joy and blessing because they remind us of God's goodness toward us. And the scriptures are full of this. Um, I love this section from Psalm 16. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. And then this passage from Isaiah um, that sometimes we hear during Advent. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down and the city will be laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and donkey range free. And this is the idea of the beauty and virtue of living in the land, in the country, and relying on God's provision. And then this uh, beautiful section from Deuteronomy. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God.
And this is such a reminder, um, and so much of scripture works this way, that there is a present fulfillment and there is a future fulfillment. That there is time in everyone's life where we are in the season of what you might call good pastures. There are times that are like that, and there are other times that are not so much like that. But what we are promised is that ultimately, because of Jesus's incarnation and Jesus's death on the cross and his resurrection, that he will draw us up into his kingdom. And then when that new heaven and new earth come, then it will be like these verses for eternity. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. But in the meantime, we have to realize that all worlds will draw to an end. And this is the sad part, but you have to keep it in perspective about Aslan's country. Our world is going to have an end someday. Perhaps this one, that is Narnia, won't. Oh, Jewel, wouldn't it be lovely if Narnia just went on and on like what you said it has been? Nay, sister, answered Jewel, all worlds draw to an end except Aslan's own country. And then the eagle comes. Sire, said the eagle, when you have heard my news, you will be sorrier at my coming than of the greatest woe that ever befell you. Tyrion's heart seemed seemed to stop beating at these words, but he set his teeth and said, tell on. Two sights have I seen, said Farsight. One was Ker Paravel, filled with dead Narnians and living Calermines. The Tisrock's banner advanced upon your royal battlements and your subjects flying from the city, this way and that into the woods. Ker Paravel was taken from the sea. 20 great ships of Calermen put in there in the dark of the night before last night. No one could speak. And the other site, five leagues nearer than Ker Paravel, was Runewit the centaur, lying dead with a calamine arrow in his side. I was with him in his last hour, and he gave me this message to your majesty, to remember that all worlds draw to an end, and that noble death is a treasure which no one is too poor to buy. So, said the king after a long silence, Narnia is no more. So some scripture, all of these are Advent scriptures, by the way. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And then from Isaiah, all the stars in the sky will be dissolved, and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. But the promise in all of this, even in the sadness and the horror of what has happened, is that Aslan's own country, that is God's own country, is eternal. 
and that all everything else may fade away, that country, which is our true home, is the one that endures. And it is the one that has the an, an eternal citizenship and the one where we know that they need no light nor lamp nor sun for Christ will be there all, that we will dwell in his presence. And part of what Lewis is getting at here, this whole idea of Caraparavel falling to this invasion by sea, remember we're right in the time of World War II in these stories, and the British felt very strongly that at any moment the Germans might come by water across the channel and that the swastika flag would be flying over Buckingham Palace. And if you go back and read materials from that era, you will see those very words out there that they felt like that was a daily threat that today might be the day that that would happen. And so Lewis is pulling on all of that kind of imagery. But what he says, and this is beautiful, that Rune with that great warrior and Tyrion's dear friend that in his dying breath, what he says is his reminder that all worlds draw to an end. And the, the assumption implicit in that is all worlds draw to an end except for Aslan's country. And it is a reminder to Tyrion that he and Rinwit will one day be together again in that country. And it's the same reminder to us that when we lose people who are dear to us, who know the Lord, that one day in that country, in Jesus's country, we will be reunited. And that even though this world will end, that that is not the end, that there will be the new heaven and the new earth. And I wanna encourage you sometime when you are in St. Philip's, to get that copy of the little brochure on the stained glass window, if you've never gotten it, and to stand or sit in your pew and look at the part about the top of that stained glass window. Because the top of the stained glass window over the altar is a pictorial image of Revelation 21, of the new heaven and the new earth. And you see in it, the angel of the Lord holding the crown prepared for Jesus, the one who is the king of kings and lord of lords. And you see under where the angel is holding the crown, the river of life, this blue billowing water coming out. And then on either side, the trees that have the fruit for the healing of the nations. And then the seven stars that are hung in the sky. And then all around the window, the golden wheat of the harvest. I mean, it really is just quite incredible. And I'm not doing it justice, but Penn Hagen's brochure does do it justice. So I would commend that to you sometime during Advent to do that because it is a reminder as we sing all these hymns about Christ's return um, as part of what we look toward during Advent, uh, that there is great glory and beauty that God has prepared on that day. So I want to close just by looking at this collect for Advent Sunday. Um, As we said, Thomas Cranmer, uh, the great author of the Book of Common Prayer, um, the great English martyr uh, who, as you may know, was 
burned at the stake in the middle of Broad Street in Oxford for refusing to recant his Christian faith. Uh, he, in 1549, wrote this collect, but he brought it out from some collects that had been in use in the church since probably around the 500s. And it is a remarkable collect that is full of really good theology. And it used to be the discipline of the church that this collect was to be prayed every Sunday during Advent. And even though that's not official anymore, it is certainly a practice that we could adopt, and I would commend that to you. So listen to these words. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which thy son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility, that in that last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost now and forever. Amen. And if you think about those words, it's like that old saying that Ryan Street, who used to be our assistant here, um, whenever there was something really great that happened in church, he would lean over to me and say, if he had a little bit of a country twang, if that don't latch your fire, your wood is wet. <laughs> and this collect is one of those things. So on that note, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the season of Advent and for this looking forward to that great day when Jesus shall come in power and majesty and that new heaven and that new earth will come. And Lord, as we walk now in this time of the now and the not yet, we pray that you would help us to take to heart some of the lessons in this book, The Last Battle. We pray that you would help us to stand boldly for truth, to realize that worry and anxiety uh, advance your kingdom not at all, and that instead we are to be people of hope and joy and expectation. Lord, we pray that as we walk through the season of Advent, you would prepare our hearts that we might welcome with joy the incarnation of your Son. We thank you for these things and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all so much for coming. Please meet someone that you have not met before you go home tonight.